Good morning. Good to see you this morning. We are in the middle of a series, if you're visiting with us, called Seven Ups for a Better Life. The idea is that if you take these ups and apply them to your life, that they will hopefully inspire, encourage, help you to be a better child of God, a better disciple. And this morning, the up that we're looking at is reach up. And of course, as you can imagine, that's talking about worship. You know, people on an airplane and people in a pew are not that different. Both parties come in, they sit down and they stare forward. Both parties are seeking to get somewhere and most are satisfied with an experience that is nice. You hear people say, it was a nice flight. It was a nice worship service. But by and large, people leave unmoved, unchanged, happy to do it again when the time comes around. However, one thing that is really common among both those riding on an airplane and both sitting in a pew is that both are traveling to a destination. And for the child of God, for the worshiper, that destination is God. And so if the destination is God, if that's what we are doing in worship, is meeting God, then we cannot settle for nice. Nice falls short of the destination. We can't settle for being unmoved, unchanged, just happy to come again. It's got to go deeper than that, right? What we're seeking is wide-eyed wonder that comes not just from enduring worship, but experiencing worship. Remember back in March when ACU defeated the Texas Longhorns, the NCAA tournament, you remember that? Of course you do. I mean, that's all anybody talked about for like a month. In fact, talking about it was almost as fun as watching the experience happen on TV. Because when you're passionate about something, when you're excited about something, when something brings you joy, you can't wait to share it with anyone and everyone who will listen. I'm that way. Anytime there's a a special event that happens in my life or a momentous occasion, one of the first phone calls I make is to my wife or to my dad because I want to share that experience with them. It's almost like the luster of it fades if I don't get to share it with them. And you're the same way. I see your Facebook posts. I see you talking to people about your grandkids. When you're passionate about something, when you're excited about it, you want to share it with anyone and everyone who will listen. Are you passionate about worship? Are you passionate about God and Jesus? And are you willing to share that with anyone and everyone who will listen? Unfortunately, I don't think that most people's experience is one that they feel like they are totally changed and moved when they come out of worship. Oftentimes, I feel like that Christians see worship as mundane rather than motivating and momentous. Sometimes, churches, in an effort to inspire emotion, will manipulate those emotions. They'll find ways through artificial means to try to get people uh, to, to be excited. But you got to ask yourself, if my emotion has to be manipulated in order for me to enjoy worship, then can I really say that I'm worshiping at that point? There's a simple rule related to human behavior. It is true of every single one of you. And that rule is this. What you take seriously, you will treat seriously. I realize that's not rocket science. It's pretty simple. 
but it's true. What you take seriously, you will treat seriously. If you take guns seriously, you're going to treat them seriously. You're going to make sure that you handle them with care. If you take your marriage seriously, then you're going to treat it seriously by being selfless, by serving your spouse rather than serving yourself, putting their needs first. If you're excited and passionate about golf, then you're probably going to buy the, the newest and greatest equipment. You're going to go hit the driving range. You're, you're going to practice on the putting green. You're going to take it seriously because you treat it seriously. People who take God seriously treat Him seriously. Those who are lax or flippant about worship don't. And there's a great book by the na- a guy named J.B. Phillips. That book is called Your God is Too Small. And a portion of that book reads like this. J.B. Phillips says, many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction without any faith in God at all. This is not because they are particularly wicked or selfish or, as the old-fashioned would say, godless, but because they have not found with their adult minds a God big enough to account for life, big enough to fit in with the new scientific age, big enough to command their highest admiration and respect, and consequently, their willing cooperation. You know, we come to church and we sing songs like, How Great Thou Art. We say, God, forgive us of our sins. We recognize the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus during the Lord's Supper. We study the Bible. We ask questions like, why do you think God made mosquitoes? And we do all of this, praising God, asking Him to bless us, and asking Him to bless us some more, and and thanking Him for blessing us. And then we leave. We go out to our car. We go to the restaurant, we go home, not any different than when we came in, unmoved, unchanged. Why? I think it's because our God is too small. I think it's because our concept of worship is too small. And when your God is too small, it affects your worship. It doesn't change you. I want to ask you this morning, how big is your God? And some of you would say, well, he's, he's infinite. He's immeasurable. Really? Is that the God you worship? Because what I have noticed is we often give lip service to the God that is infinite, but we worship a God that is infinitesimal. Remember Job? On the heels of losing all of his wealth, which at that time was livestock, on the heels of losing his livestock and all of his servants, He then learns that all ten of his children are killed when the house that they are in collapses on them. And and I wonder what Job did after he heard that news. The Bible doesn't really state what happened, you know, necessarily behind the scenes. You kind of have to fill in the gaps a little bit. I wonder if he rushed to the scene and he rummaged through the rubble trying to find the bodies of his children. I wonder if he had to play coroner for his own children. And I wonder if when he found their bodies, he began wailing and and weeping bitterly. I, I don't know how that scene played out. But what I do know is exactly what the Bible tells us he did. You know, Job could replace livestock. He could find other servants. But losing your 10 children would be enough to set you over the edge. And yet, When Job finds that he lost all these things, especially his children, do you know what he does? He worships. Let me say that again. Job worshipped. How does a man worship 
when his whole life is crumbling around him. He says this, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's response to the devastation that befell him was to worship. What kind of person does that? What kind of person finds it in their heart to hit their knees and bow before the Almighty? You know, our discussions on worship often involve the acts of worship, right? And I don't like that term. I think it should be called expressions of worship. But anyway, we talk about singing, we talk about praying, we talk about preaching, we talk about the Lord's Supper. That's usually what's involved when we talk about worship. And when we talk about making worship better, we talk about those things, right? We need to be better at those things. Folks, those things aren't worship. You heard me right. Those are not worship. Those things are not worship. Those things are expressions of worship. You want to know what worship is? Worship is loving God. Worship is honoring God. Worship is an action demonstrating our hearts. Most of our problems with worship stem from the fact that our God is too small. The God we serve and worship is often a God that is too small. Is that not what God, or excuse me, Job discovered? I think Job discovered that in the end. If you've ever read through the book of Job, the end of it, he discovers that his God is too small, right? I mean, you think about it. Job starts out losing his messengers, losing his livestock, losing his children. Then he loses his health. And in the beginning, his faith was a bright beacon. But after time, the light began to fade. His friends come onto the scene and, and try to help him, but they weren't too friendly, were they? They tried to reason away what was happening to him by blaming him, so they weren't much help. Job feels like that he has been wrongly accused. He just wants to have his day in court. He wants to plead with God to say, you got the wrong guy. And so what we see are two chapters of great faith, followed by 35 chapters of questioning. Job wants answers. He feels that his suffering is unwarranted, and eventually he gets his day in court, but uh, it doesn't go near the way he thought it would. God tells him, gird up your loins, which means get ready for some vigorous activity. You wanted this, now you're going to get it. And God warns Job. He tells him that if you want your day in court, I'm going to give it to you. And he begins pounding Job with 60-some-odd questions meant to expose his ignorance about the earth and the environment. I mean, up to that point, Job was more than willing to criticize how our Lord conducted his day-to-day -day activities. However, he couldn't even answer the most rudimentary, fundamental questions about how things operate. So God interrogates Job in order to humble him. And to Job's credit, he listens, he learns. This was Job's final exam, and thankfully he passed. I say thankfully because how terrible would it be if the book of Job just ended with, with a, a miserable, crusty old man who, who didn't believe in God any longer or who was mad at God and shaking his fist at God, but that's not how the book ends. No, Job listens, he learns, and at the end of all of it, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job retracts his charges against the Almighty. He admits that his protests had been rash and arrogant and were spoken out of ignorance. He even prays for his three friends who, like I said, were anything but friendly during this whole ordeal. But here's what I love about Job's response to God. Job is confessing that whatever God allows to happen, even to him, it has all been consistent with a divine plan. 
Not only is God powerful, he is good all the time. Now, he's not safe, he's not tame, but he is good all the time. And Job is left with nothing to say except, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry for ever doubting you. In essence, Job acknowledges that his God or his concept of God was too small. Of all the things that Job got back in the end, I think that was the most important. The fact that he recognized that his concept of God was too small. There's a lady who had a, a nice ring on her finger, and she, she always wondered the origin of that ring. Her husband gave it to her, but he, you know, he didn't know where it came from. He didn't, didn't really know the worth of it. And so one day she's walking downtown, and she sees a jewelry store, and she decides to go in and have it appraised. And she walks in, and the jeweler takes out his magnifier, and he looks at the ring, and he studies its texture and its color and the cut and all those kind of things. And he pulls the magnifier away, and he is dumbfounded because he realizes that what he has in his possession, what he is examining, is a ring that is worth over $2 million. And so as palms begin to sweat, as he realizes the value of what he is holding in his hands, the woman, of course, is excited as well because she had no idea that it would be worth that much. If she had known that her ring was worth over $2 million, she might have stored it in a safe somewhere. She would have taken better care of it. She would have treated it like the priceless treasure that it is. But that's us, right? When it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to our worship of the divine, we should treat God and worship like the prized possession that it is. It is invaluable, right? The woman's entire attitude, her entire life changed now that she recognized the priceless value of that ring. And that's what worship is to us. Look with me at Psalm 95. And in Psalm 95, here's what we read. Come, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before his presence with a song of thanksgiving. Let's shout joyfully to him in songs with instruments. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is filled, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test, they tested me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I was disgusted with that generation and said that they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, they certainly shall not enter my rest. The jeweler does, I mean, excuse me, the psalmist does exactly what that jeweler did. He recognizes the priceless value of his relationship with God. It prompts worship. We have to recognize the priceless value of this relationship that we have, and thus it prompts us to worship. This psalm starts with the rational side of things. Did you notice that? It starts with thinking. It starts with who God is, what he has done. The psalmist is enumerating. He's kind of taking inventory. He recognizes the value and the beauty of the one who does all these marvelous things. And it leads him to say, come, let us bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, the God, our maker. In other words, let's ascribe ultimate value 
to God by engaging our entire being. That is what worship is. I said it a while ago, those five acts that we engage in, that's not worship. So do you want to know what worship is? Worship is ascribing ultimate value to something by engaging your entire being. And the psalmist points out for us what that looks like. Worship engages every aspect of one's being. It engages the emotion, it engages the will, and it engages the mind. Notice it again, verses 1 and 2. Come, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before his presence with a song of thanksgiving. Let's shout joyfully to him in songs with instruments. This is emotional language, right? Sing, sing, shout. You know, sometimes in the church we downplay emotion. But make no mistake about it. If you're fully engaged in worship, emotion's going to pour out of you. That's not a bad thing. We see it over and over again in Scripture. People who were emotional when they connected to God in worship. So there's emotion. Then notice verses 6 and 7. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. This is submissive language. Come, kneel, bow down. Worship is not just emotional. The will must be involved, which means that worship is dictated by someone else. It's not our job to dictate worship. It's our job to submit in worship. God dictates the worship that he wants, and we submit. But then notice verses 8 and 9. Do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. They tested me, though they had seen my work. Now this is thinking language. Hear, listen, accept what God says. There is an understanding that must be present in worship. You're not just engaging the heart, you're also engaging the brain. The worship that God is after will include all three of these things because it's engaging our entire being. The emotion, the will, and reason. If worship only engages the will, well, then worship becomes ritualistic or routine. If worship only engages our emotions, well, then it just becomes a spiritual experience or a spiritual high and aesthetic experience. If worship only engages the mind, well, then it becomes an academic exercise, and that's not good either. All three have to be present, and the key with all three is change. Are you changed? Worship should change you, and it will never change you unless you engage your entire being. As we said, worship is an act of ascribing. In fact, we only know the word worship as a verb, don't we? But you know, there was a time when worship was also a noun. You called people worship. So like king or royalty, you would say your worshipfulness or your worship. It was a noun, not just a verb. It was ascribed to royalty. Now, God is our worship. We know that. We know who the ultimate being is that we are worshiping. He is worthy of our worship, and so we ascribe our worship to Him. And in fact, literally, that is what worship means. It means worthship. God is worthy of our worship, so it's worth 
worship. That's literally what it means. We ascribe him worth and we appreciate his worth. Therefore, we worship him. We are ascribing ultimate value and worth to the Almighty through the engagement of our entire being. In other words, we become reacher uppers. That's what we are as worshipers. We are reacher uppers. You know, if you've ever flown on a commercial flight, you know that before the plane ever leaves the runway, a flight attendant stands at the front and she goes through this song and dance about all these safety procedures. Now, he or she will start with how to buckle your safety belt, like maybe you couldn't figure that out on your own. And then, maybe if you're kind of afraid of flying, if you're a nervous flyer, your anxiety rises a little bit as they talk about in case of an emergency, the oxygen mask are going to fall from the ceiling and here's how you put them on. And then if you're a really nervous flyer, your anxiety goes to new levels when they talk about how your seat becomes a flotation device. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I wish I hadn't watched that episode of Air Disasters last night, you know. When it comes to flying, you have this flight attendant who has to go through this routine. That's part of their job. And as passengers, by and large, they're not paying attention. I mean, if you've flown on a flight, you know that. They're going through their song and dance, and the passengers are rummaging through their stuff. You know, they're maybe asleep. They're doing all kinds of other things. They're not paying attention to that. And I wonder, is that how God feels? Last flight I was on, I watched all this, and I thought to myself, there's a sermon illustration there. Is that not how God feels, maybe? Is that he is sitting there waiting for us to experience him and to foster this relationship and worship. And we're, we're so distracted by so many other things. And look, I'm not trying to hammer on you this morning because I fall into that category as well. I'm right there with you if you're someone that finds it hard to focus in worship. I, I, I find the same thing sometimes. I'm looking over my lesson. I'm thinking about all the things that I have to say. Sometimes my, my mind gets distracted by other things. So I know how it is. But the goal is to experience God in worship, and therefore we have to engage our entire being. And so what that means is that we need to prepare. We need to prepare. How many of you prepare for worship? You prepare for a lot of other things. But if you're going on a trip, especially if you're flying somewhere and you're going to be gone for a prolonged period, you prepare by packing a bag, right? If Worship is a destination. If worship is traveling to a destination, if that destination is God and we are seeking to meet Him in worship, you need to prepare. You need to pack your bag the night before, the week before. So what are some things that you can do in preparation for worship? Well, these are real easy. And, and I'm not talking down to you here, okay? So please understand. These are just real easy things that I think we should all do. I try to do myself. Number one, pray. Pray before you come to worship, so you can pray when you're here. Sleep, so you don't sleep when you're here. Get plenty of rest the night before. Prepare by getting plenty of rest, and then study. Study before you get here. In your Bible class, if you've been studying the book of Hebrews, then look over it, study it some more, so that when you get here, you're prepared to engage in that study. Sing. How many of you sing besides here? And some of you are going, oh, you don't want me singing. We have a song in our heart. We should be singing. 
You know, at the office every day, one of the great things about working here at the Oldham Lane Church of Christ, and there's a lot of them, but one of them is, is Luke Burnham sings all day, every day throughout the office. It's like I'm in a real-life musical, and I'm the weak link for sure. I love that. I love that you know, I can hear Luke two doors down singing. Sing, not just while you're here. Sing praises to God, right? You know, as an athlete, before a big game, I would find a place in the field house and I would put on my headphones and I would, I would curl up somewhere and I would close my eyes and I would just think about everything that was going to happen in the game or what I wanted to happen. I would think about the game plan and what coach taught us during the week and I would picture myself catching a touchdown pass, making a good block. And I always listened to this one song, uh, In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. I'd have that playing in my ears and I would think about what I was going to do or what I hoped to do during the game. As a coach, the night before the basketball season started, every year, like clockwork, I watched the movie Hoosiers. That was a movie that I loved, a movie that, that inspired me. What are you doing to prepare for worship? What gets you hyped to be here? And if you're saying nothing, if you don't really think about it until that morning, that's a problem, folks. That's a problem. Prepare for worship. What are you doing on Saturday night to prepare? What are you doing on Sunday morning before you come here to prepare? What happens all too often is we get in the car and World War III breaks out before we get here. Maybe you had a fight with your spouse and you're wrestling with kids and, you know, some of those things. You know, some of you here this morning, it's been a long time since you've heard, you know, uh, a sermon because you're wrestling kids, but stick with it. You're doing a great thing by having them here and being here. I appreciate that so much. Some of those things you just really can't help right now, right? But there are other distractions that we can eliminate or that we can set aside for the moment as we prepare for worship. And it's not just Saturday night or Sunday morning, it's during the week. What are you doing during the week? Because here's the thing, folks, you're not just a worshiper when you come here Sunday. This is not the only time you worship. Do you realize that? The Bible uses two different words for worship primarily, proscuneo and latreo. Proscuneo is the act of being prostrate before something or someone. And of course, that someone is God for us. But that's literally what proscuneo means. It means bowing down before the one you worship. Another word for worship is truo. And Paul uses this word in Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. My whole life is one continuous act of devotion to God. Yes, there are certain expressions of worship that take place here. And yes, we derive those from Scripture, and we should. But this isn't the only time that we worship. There is proscuneo worship and there is latrial worship. Worship defines our lives as a disciple. As we gather and as we scatter, Scripture doesn't assign the label of worship to just the Sunday assembly. Worship defines us. It's who we are, not just something we do. Our lives are indicative of the one that we worship. We become what we worship. So let's dispel of this notion that worship can only happen on Sunday when we engage in those various acts. Because when we gather together on Wednesday night for the devotional time, you know what we're doing? We're worshiping. Even though we're not taking the Lord's Supper, we're worshiping. When the youth group gets together to sing praises to God, you know what they're doing? 
they're worshiping. When you go and sit at the bedside of a brother or sister that is dying, you know what you're doing? That's your spiritual act of service. That's worship. When you volunteer at the Christian Service Center, that's worship. Your whole life is defined by worship. It's not just something that happens twice a week at a building at agreed upon time. It's not just acts, it's an attitude. It's not just Sunday stuff, it's your life. You know, in the first movie, the first book of Harry Potter, there is a scene where Harry finds the mirror of Irised. Irised is just desire spelled backwards. And he looks into the mirror and he sees his parents, which is odd because he never really knew his parents. They died when he was very young, but he sees them loving on him, showing affection towards him, and he's baffled by it. So he goes and he gets his friend Weasley and he brings Ron Weasley back and he tells him to look into the mirror thinking that he was going to see Harry's parents as well, but he doesn't. He sees himself, but it's a, it's a modified version of himself. Uh, he's a star athlete. He's head prefect of the school and they're both now baffled by it. And that's when the mentor comes in and tells them that the mirror exposes your deepest passions and desires. The mentor even says, we're going to do away with the mirror because people are wasting away looking at it. I want to ask you this morning, what is your deepest passion? What do, you, what do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see a worshiper? Or do you see all the other things in your life? Hopefully you see, first and foremost, a worshiper, someone who is experiencing God, someone who is connecting with God, someone who is fostering the most important relationship that we could ever have. What's the one thing that if you had it, you would feel complete? Hopefully, it's a relationship with the Heavenly Father. Hopefully you are ascribing ultimate worth to him, and hopefully that is causing you to worship when you reach the point where you can say, God is enough, he's all I need. Then and only then will you truly worship. So, now we come to the invitation. And the invitation is usually a time where you get all your stuff together, right? We're not going to do that this morning. Don't be rifling through your stuff, don't be putting everything away. Because the invitation is a part of worship as well. And our invitation this morning is for all who need prayers, who want uh, maybe to study the Bible, maybe you want to, uh, maybe you need encouragement. Perhaps you veered off track like we say all the time, God allows you turns. Maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism and begin a daily walk with God. Notice I said begin, that's not the goal. The goal is discipleship, but that's where it begins is faith, repentance, confessing Jesus as Lord, being baptized for the mission of your sins. If you're ready to do that, we can do that this morning as well. But remember, when you leave here, you are still a worshiper. Be changed and change others. Come as we stand and as we sing.